Hey guys, welcome to the very first episode of Crime Dive with Kate. Today I'm here to tell you about Israel Keys, who is, in my opinion, one of the most methodic and likely prolific serial killers in recent history. With no victim profile and years of pre-planning his crimes, so much mystery and so many missing bodies still surround his deeply dark and evil deeds. talk about Israel Keys in the way that we normally talk about serial killers. We usually can start at the beginning and tell a story in a way that ultimately leads up to the person they become and the crimes they commit. But Israel flew so below the radar for most of his life that we can really only talk backwards and start from the moment he got caught. So I'd like for you to join me on this journey and I promise it'll all make sense in the end. With that being said, our study begins where Israel's ended, February 1st, 2012, at the Common Grounds Coffee Shop in Anchorage, Alaska. Samantha Koenig was a bartender at Common Grounds, which was less of a traditional coffee shop and more of a drive-up, standalone fixture in a parking lot. Samantha was closing that night. She was finishing up her nightly duties and getting ready to go home when a man approached the store and asked for an Americano. The interaction seemed normal enough at first, exchanging pleasantries and making small talk. Samantha then went to make the coffee. However, after a few moments, when she returned to the window, she realized something was gravely wrong. The man was wielding a gun and demanded that Samantha turn the lights off immediately. As all of this is being captured on security footage inside the coffee shop, the man then tells Samantha to reach into the cash register and pull out the money to give him. And as she does so, much to her horror, the man slowly begins climbing into the coffee shop window. Once inside, he leads her out of the coffee shop, across the parking lot, and out of view of the camera. This man was Israel Keys. And I'm sure if you've worked in the service industry, we all know what a clopening is. Closing one day and then having to come in early the next day. Well, as you might imagine, Samantha did not show up for her shift the next morning. The barista that was supposed to work with Samantha that morning, after many attempts at calling her cell phone, actually ended up reporting her missing. Samantha was never late for a shift. And if something came up where she may be running a few minutes behind, she would always call. After she was reported missing, community search parties immediately assembled, searching for Samantha in areas from anywhere around the coffee shop to places she might be hanging out to talking to her friends. They even scoured her social media. But 
Unfortunately, one and a half dreadful weeks went by, and they didn't hear anything. A break in the case came on February 24, 2012. A text message was sent to her boyfriend's cell phone. It read, Connor Park, under the sign of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Purdy. Gross. That's like P-U-R-D-Y. That's, that's a no. Like, that's a no in my book. Anyway, so when they got to the park, they found a Ziploc bag pinned to a bulletin board under a lost dog flyer. The lost dog was Albert, like in the text message. Inside the Ziploc bag was an incredibly strange picture of Samantha, with that day's paper actually held up against her. There was also a ransom note for $30,000 to be deposited into Samantha's bank account. Samantha's face looked bleak, void of life, just sort of staring at the camera ahead. The authorities immediately put a watch onto Samantha's bank account. But what the family didn't know in that moment was the photo was of Samantha all right, but her eyes had been sewn open and makeup had been applied to her body and face post-mortem to make her look still alive. You see, after Israel kidnapped Samantha Koenig, he brought her back to a shed behind his house, the house where his then-girlfriend and daughter were sleeping, raped her, and then murdered her, all in the same night. He left her body to freeze there in the cold Alaskan winter. The next day, he then proceeded to go on a cruise with his girlfriend and daughter that lasted around a week. Once he was back from that vacation, he thought out the body of Samantha, raped her yet again, and took the ransom photo. Yeah, I know that's a lot to digest. But remember the watch that they put on Samantha's bank account? Yeah, after he returned from the cruise, Israel began using her debit card in several locations across the country until he was eventually caught leaving a bank in Lufkin, Texas. He was on a road trip on the way to his sister's wedding when he used the ATM card at a local bank. Authorities responded immediately. Israel was arrested promptly after presenting them with his Alaskan driver's license. His vehicle also contained several items belonging to Samantha. He was then swiftly extradited to Alaska, where he admitted to killing Samantha and ultimately getting caught by playing against his own rules. Don't ever kill close to home. All this information, right? They're just not going to I just wanted you to know my thoughts on that. I don't speak for the U.S. Attorney's Office of Vermont. I don't speak for state prosecutors on that issue, but you know, I think. Well, there's no way anyone can ever unhear that laugh. Once in police custody, Keyes told investigators that he had driven Samantha's body to Matanuska Lake in a series of three trips. You see, he had completely dismembered her body and put the parts into a series of plastic trash bags. Once at the lake, he would drill a hole and go ice fishing. And while he was ice fishing, he would lower Samantha's body into the cold water below. He even went as far as to tell one investigator that he actually caught a fish while disposing of Samantha's body. He then took it home and cooked the fish and ate it. Yeah. 
authorities sent a dive team out to Matanuska Lake, where, sure enough, after several days of looking through the ice and water, Samantha's body was found in a series of black trash bags. Once investigators realized the type of offender they were facing at this point, they began to assume that Samantha may not be Keyes' only victim. Israel tells investigators that he feels like he can be two people very easily. And he's felt this way since he was around 14. I think at this point it would be useful for us to do a little bit of digging into Israel's background. Israel was born January 7, 1978, in Richmond, Utah, to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. He was the second of nine children, but he was the first son out of the bunch. Israel's mother was known to sort of religion hop, if you will. At the time of his birth, his parents were fundamentalist Mormon. Israel spent much of his time in his childhood hunting for food and building log cabins. Around his teen years, his mother moved them to the religious organization known as the Ark. The Ark is sort of a military church, and some people have categorized them as a hate group. And they preach something called Christian identity. Christian identity has rhetoric involving anti-Semitic beliefs, pro-white ideals, and just all-around racism. So this sort of hate messaging, I'm sure, didn't help Israel's sort of predisposed situation, if you will. But it was kind of around that time he realized that a lot of what he considered normal wasn't necessarily normal for the rest of society. He began showing signs of psychopathy. He would break into cabins, steal guns, and bury them in the ground. He also killed a cat one time and thought it was funny. When he turned around, he saw his friends throwing up and crying. Mm-hmm, Israel, yeah, maybe you're not as normal as you think you are. Around 1996, the family moved to Oregon with a strong religious upbringing. So at this point, he was thinking maybe religion was to blame for the way he thought. So that being said, around 1996, when the family moved to Oregon, he began dabbling in Satanism. He thought, well, maybe if I'm this evil person, then I might be a Satanist. One afternoon by the Deschutes River, which is around Portland, Oregon, he actually thought about committing his first crime of murder. He alluded to the fact that he had done previous crimes before this, but didn't really state what they were or to what degree they were carried out. But this incident was ultimately telling of the person he would grow into become. He took a young girl to a secluded bathroom along the Deschutes River, where he there tied her up and began sexually assaulting her. However, what he did not expect was that this girl was a complete badass. She ended up finding herself in this awful predicament. But she had the wherewithal to actually start having a conversation with him. Even going as far as to say she thought he was cute and they could have dated if he wasn't doing what he was doing. And y'all, this freaked him out badly. He actually ended up letting her go 
And this whole experience kind of made him rethink why he was doing what he was doing. He thought that Satanism and carrying out sacrificial acts was part of who he was. But after this attack, he realized that he wasn't doing it for any sort of a higher power. He was just doing it because he wanted to. After living in Oregon with his family for a while, he moved to upstate New York for about a year, not very long at all. By then, it was 1998, and Israel then went into the army. He was stationed in Fort Worth as well as Egypt, and he was sort of known as the guy that was quiet and kept to himself by his comrades. However, on the weekends, he would drink a lot of wild turkey and listen to the insane clown posse. Awesome. That definitely sounds like my idea of a great night. He spent some of his time hanging out with a young girl from Tel Aviv, and they would sort of hang out, nothing too serious, but he found himself getting more and more curious about possibly harming her physically. However, he could never manage to bring himself to do it for some reason. And this sort of sparked something in him. Even though he had this drive for violence and to put physical pain onto people, he found out that he just couldn't do it to anybody that he knew or liked. And this very well may be one of the first examples of him realizing that, from there on out, he would have to cause harm to complete strangers, and complete strangers only. After the army, Israel met a woman he would soon have a child with. The two were dating and they lived together in Nia Bay, Washington. Israel got a job at the Macaw Tribe as a parks and rec manager. The Macaw Tribe is a group of indigenous people living on an Indian reservation in the Pacific Northwest. After working at the tribe and dating her for only about a year, the couple welcomed a baby girl into the world in 2001. And remember how I said Israel was self-proclaimed two people in one? Yeah, for a lot of the years between 2001 and 2007, there's very little information on him. Supposedly, he was doing the dad thing. However, he and the mother of his daughter split up sometime around 2006, I believe. And Israel moved back to Anchorage from Nia Bay. He started his own construction company called, you guess it, Keys Construction, based out of Anchorage. He was still a good father to his daughter and had joint custody of her with his ex. But let's focus on this construction business for a minute. So by making his own business, he pretty much was an independent contractor and started to get jobs even in other states. At that, he began traveling more, and if you're interested, you can actually go to the FBI's website and find Israel's full travel log there. And let me tell you, it's pretty insane. He goes just about everywhere. He went to a lot of places after he started the construction business and rented a lot of cars and, you know, committed a lot of crimes we still don't know about today. He also later confessed to actually robbing banks in between murders to sort of keep that high up. He would use the money to fund a lot of his traveling as well as to satiate his need uh, to commit crimes in between the murders. And he also used the money from the bank robberies to fund a lot of his traveling. 
So now at the point we're at, I think you have a good idea of the background story and pretty much where Israel was up until the moment that things started getting bad. So let's jump back into that interrogation room, shall we? Okay, so we're back in the interrogation room and to sort of move things along, one of the next things that he ends up admitting is to burying kill kits in various areas across the United States when on his travels. These were buckets that he would bury when on work trips, just sort of randomly, and they would contain things like zip ties, restraints, silencers, guns, and even things like Drano to speed up the human decomposition process, all to come back at a certain point of his choosing to kill people at random using these kits. My concern is about keeping things under wraps for the duration of my incarceration, however long that may be. And uh, if I have to do that by giving out little information at a time and you know, continuing to work with you or whoever else, if, if, I, if it seems like that's going to keep working, that's what I'll do, you know, even if more drama that way, I guess, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's still better than the alternative. He wanted the death penalty, and he wanted the death penalty under the stipulation that the more bodies he gave them, the closer to death he would be without a trial. He didn't want any media coverage, and he didn't want his daughter to grow up knowing the gruesome details of his murders. So, Israel said that if it would speed up the process of him getting convicted and sentenced to death, he'd give them two more bodies. The, the moving forward option or the, you know, the stalling out option, in which case Vermont moves forward federally in the state. Um, now, the state of Vermont does not even have a death penalty. But they would have an interest, as you can tell, from their office. But for your cooperation and our working with them, the state of Vermont would want to charge you, right? Okay, so Vermont doesn't have the death penalty. So what's up with Vermont? Israel tells investigators that on June 2nd, 2012, he traveled from Anchorage to Seattle and then to Chicago. In Chicago, he rented a car and drove sort of halfway across the country with the final ending point being in Maine, where his brother lived. He was going on a family visit, but along the way, he made a couple of detours. And one of those detours was in Essex, Vermont. And it just so happens that in Essex, Vermont, he had buried a kill kit approximately two years before. Once in Vermont, he checks into a hotel and mills around for a couple of days. On the evening of June 8th, he left his hotel to go on a walk. And he ended up wandering around some of the neighborhoods near the hotel. At a little bit past 12 a.m., he comes across a house in a neighborhood that seems to have a garage that looks easy to break into. Also, there were no signs of children or dogs that lived in the house. And this sort of was a thing with him. Children and dogs were against his moral code, and they also would be a hindrance for him carrying out what he wanted to do. So with that being said, 
Israel then kicked in an air conditioning unit attached to the garage and climbed through the hole he had made. He broke the glass into the kitchen and walked into the house. The couriers woke up to a man holding a gun and wearing a ski mask and gloves. Bill and Lorraine Courier were an older couple that resided in that house. They woke up startled. He then proceeded to zip tie them and once they were subdued, he demanded to know the location of their car keys and led them downstairs. He loaded them up into their very own car. He told them his plan for holding them was just for ransom. He said he would be dropping them off at a secondary location where they would be safe and held until the ransom money was paid. He then drove them to a farmhouse that he had scoped out earlier in his visit. The farmhouse was for sale it was vacant and run down. After pulling up to the farmhouse, he took Bill out of the car and led him into the basement. He then proceeded to tie him up with rope to a stool. He comes back outside, expecting Lorraine to be in the car where he had left her. He finds her outside of the vehicle, actually, attempting to run away towards the highway. He begins darting after her and quickly catches up tackles her to the ground. She begins to fight, but once he gains control, he takes her back upstairs, bounds her to the bed with duct tape by her arms and feet, and ties a rope around her neck. Israel then goes back downstairs to check on Bill Courier, and much to his dismay, Bill has broken loose from his restraints, and this really kind of, quote, pissed him off. Keyes is a methodic killer. He plans everything out beforehand. So when things don't go according to that plan, he gets very upset, to say the least. His plan for Bill was to rape and then kill him, but he is now being faced with a very much standing and very able-bodied Bill Courier. At this point, Keyes feels like he's losing control. He grabs a shovel and hits Bill over the head twice with it until he goes down. Once Bill is on the ground, Israel then goes back upstairs. But once he gets there, he can hear the shouts of Bill coming through the floor. He's back on his feet again. Bill Courier was not giving up. Keyes runs back downstairs, pulls out his gun and his silencer. He immediately begins shooting Bill in the torso and head. Amazingly enough, Bill stands for a moment and manages to walk just a few more steps. Keyes begins to fire more and more rounds into Bill Courier. He then falls to the floor and breathes his last breath. Keyes then returns back upstairs to where Lorraine is still laying restrained to the bed. She's still fighting all the way. He cuts off her clothes with a knife and rapes her twice. He then takes her off the bed, brings her downstairs to where her husband is laying in his very large pool of blood. He stands behind her with a rope and slowly chokes the life out of her. Finally, he places a zip tie around Lorraine's neck to make sure he's done his deed. There is no more motion or life from Lorraine Courier. He places their lifeless bodies into a 55-gallon trash bag and puts them in the corner of the barn, covering them up with debris, leaves, and sticks, pretty much anything he can find. 
At this point, the sun actually was beginning to come up. The whole incident had taken longer than he originally anticipated. The couriers had fight in them and a will to live. His original plan was to burn the barn after he was finished. But as daylight crept in, he knew he didn't have much time left. The farmhouse was located on Route 15 on the highway, and he knew people would be starting their morning commute soon. So he had to get out of there, and he had to get out of there fast. He drove Bill and Lorraine's car to a parking lot where his rental car was located. He got out of the courier's car, put his hood up and his head down, making sure he was out of the way of the surveillance cameras. He then left in his rental car and proceeded to continue on to Maine. The farmhouse in which Bill and Lorraine's bodies were located was eventually purchased and then torn down. Bill and Lorraine's bodies were taken to a landfill during the demolition of the house. They were never seen again. Law enforcement and the FBI were never able to recover the remains of the couriers. Israel had given the investigators two more bodies, but they knew there were several more that he hadn't told them about. What you said at the very end when we took a break was, hey, if I have to give you a little bit, you step along the way to keep things moving. He's told investigators that on April 9th, 2009, he kidnapped a woman from the East Coast and drove her to upstate New York, where he there killed and buried her. So I'm asking you then today to give us the name of the person in New York as a little little something. Investigators believe that the woman was Deborah Feldman, a missing sex worker from Hackensack, New Jersey. Here's what can happen today. You give me the name, I write it down. I don't ask any more questions. We all have some lunch, talk about whatever you want to talk about, you have a cigar. Israel and the investigators are now in a game of cat and mouse. Israel is the cat, and the investigators are the mice. Well, I mean, it sounds tempting, but no, I'm not. I'm not giving any names. It seems as if Israel isn't budging. He wants confirmation on the death penalty without having a trial, which is something that's virtually unheard of. He thinks what he has is so precious to investigators that they will pretty much rewrite how the court systems work for him. Do you think anyone's going to really, do you think Vermont, say Vermont charges you for the courage, do you think they're really going to give you the death penalty knowing that there's more things out there? Do you think they're going to say, ah, you know, right, so I'll see it. I know, I'm going to catch 22. I already fucked up. (laughs) He's beginning to understand the gravity of what he's already told them and what this might mean for him in the future. I don't need to be punished for these other things that I haven't talked to you about yet. Yeah, all these other states, they're not going to, they can't prosecute a dead man. So, to me, this statement means one of maybe a couple of things. One, he's right. They can't prosecute a dead man. He wants them to just go ahead and kill him. And he feels like what he's given them is enough to sort of seal his death, so to say. And the second thing is actually foreshadowing of Keyes' ultimate demise. This so-called game of cat and mouse went on between Israel and the investigators for a fair amount more time. And believe me, I could sit here and talk to you about that and what was said for hours and hours. Things such as, 
what was in each of the kill kits. Where were the kill kits buried all over the country? His travel log, other murders he was linked to at any given point. I believe that Israel thought it was futile to keep going on with his confessions at this point. He knew that he wouldn't get what he ultimately wanted, which was death. He didn't want a trial, he didn't want the news media to get a hold of the crimes he'd committed, and he didn't want it to get back to his daughter. On the morning of December 2nd, 2012, at the Anchorage Correctional Complex, Israel was found dead in his cell. He had died by his own hand. He had somehow obtained a razor and slit his wrists vertically. He also made a makeshift noose out of bed sheets, tied it around his neck to ensure that he would be successful in his death. Investigators also found a series of 12 different drawings under his prison bed. Those drawings were of 11 skulls with upside down crosses on their foreheads, all drawn in Israel's blood. One of the skulls bore the sentence, we are one. There was also an extra drawing of a pentagram with a goat's head in the middle. And the last thing they found was a suicide note, which read, quote, Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young. Streetlights push back the black, neat rows. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stone, bodies molder below. Turn away quick. Bob your head to the seat. As straight through that stop sign you roll, loaded truck with lights off slams into your broadside, your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your life. Fate had its own scheme. Crush like a bug, you still die. Soon, now, you'll join those ranks of the dead, or your ashes the wind will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a few tears. Pretend it's okay, it's off to heaven you go. But the reality is you were just bones and meat, and with your brain died, also your soul. Send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes, quietly, quickly, Say, it's all for the best. It's best for you so their fate you'll not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen. Soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free. Land of the lie. Land of scheme Americanize. Consume what you don't need. Stars you idolize. Pursue what you admit is a dream then it's American die. Now that I have you held tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear so you know that it's true. You're my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts, now in an intimate prelude. I looked in your eyes. They were so dark, warm and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guiles the game, the better the potential to fill up those pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through highlights of red. 
What color, I wonder, and how straight will it turn plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret unspoken. Nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand on your shoulder, your eyes. Forget the lady called Luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. I wonder what that I could do to keep you, let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close now while I work. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower or your petals I'll crush. To this day, the FBI believes Israel Keys killed upwards of 11 people. Only four are known. His suicide note left no reference to any other victims, no hints, no nothing. Just an angsty, seemingly poetic, nonsensical rant, which appropriately sort of mirrors Israel's life. He died the same way that he had lived, a pretentious perfectionist and a coward. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Dive. This podcast is engineered by Andy Foster, theme music written by Matt Lovett, and hosted by me, Kate. And of course, always thank you to Ed Bounds, the mastermind behind Crime Pursuit, without whom none of this could be possible. I'll be back with another case for you soon. And until then, don't catch yourself left out in the dark.